0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Michikanis, the host of today's podcast, and today we'll be talking to Professor Dean Krauk about his new book, The Making of an Anti-Fascist, Nordahl Grieg Between the World Wars. Dean Krauk is an associate professor in the German, Nordic, and Slavic department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the author of Fascism and Modernist Literature in Norway, among many other academic articles. Professor Kropp, welcome to the show. Thank you for
1: having me, Nick.
2: Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So, Dean, could you tell me a little bit about how Greek story and your work came together and what did the process of this project look like?
1: Sure. So, I think the first thing to know is that I'm a specialist in Norwegian literature since the 19th century. Much of my work as a scholar has focused on how literature becomes intertwined with political ideologies a key moment has been the interwar period and World War II. So in the case of my first book that you mentioned, Fascism and Modernist Literature in Norway, which came out in 2017, the political questions there were about fascist sympathizing and support for the Nazi occupation of Norway during the war. Um, on the part of several key literary figures from Norway, in- including the very well-known case of Knut Homsen, um, who was a Nobel Prize winner in 1920 and went on to support the Nazi invasion and occupation. So, um, of course, the vastly more popular position in Norway at that time was some kind of anti-fascism, some kind of opposition to the invasion and the occupation, whether that drew on um, communists or socialists or moderate liberal or even uh, more conservative Norwegian nationalist ideas. Um, there was a wide array of uh, you know, motivations for opposition to fascism and Nazism in Norway. Um, and as I was writing the f- uh, chapter in the first book that dealt with an interesting figure who was a, a psychoanalytic anti-fascist critic and novelist named Sigurd Hull, um, I became very curious about this breadth and the range of intellectual and ideological impulses in Norwegian anti-fascist culture and writing. Um, so the second book project, the, this book, actually emerged as a planned study of the works of um, four authors, four figures, um, one of whom was Nordal Grieg. And um, as I started to read more through Grieg's writings and researching his context, I decided that his story was complex and interesting enough for a book-length single-author study. Um, So I kind of shifted gears a little bit several years ago, and the the method became more, um, you know, something like a deliberately old-fashioned method, uh, basically a biographical and historically contextual approach to a single author. Um, Grieg's contexts are fluctuating and global and interesting and his life was fascinating in ways that I hadn't really known about earlier, despite knowing about this writer for um, a long time now. And I thought that his story deserved more attention in the English-speaking world, especially at a time when um, fascism and new forms of authoritarianism were being discussed so often in the U.S. and and all over the world.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And is Grieg, what is the public memory
1: surrounding Grieg like today in Norway? So um, iconic can be an overused word in a lot of ways, but um, I think it's fair to say that he's an icon, an iconic figure of the Norwegian resistance um, due to the, the legacy he acquired during the, the um, Nazi occupation. Um, he was out of the country for most of the time, but he was uh, a voice of the resistance in that he was speaking on the radio, reading uh, inspirational poetry on the radio, and many of his poems were distributed clandestinely through the illegal press. Um, and There were tons and tons of Norwegian um, illegal newspapers. So he was primarily remembered nowadays as a, a leftist poet who wrote some of the most um, important and widely known texts from uh, the war era in, in Norway. Um, it's known that he died young in a plane crash. I think that has um, contributed to his allure in various ways. He was accompanying an air raid as a, as a journalist, basically, over Berlin in 1943 when he died. And um, and then layered onto what was known of the World War II history about Nordal Grieg was his sort of reappearance as the author of this poem um, that was widely used as a commemorative song after the July 2011 far-right terrorist attacks in Norway. So the poem is called a Norwegian Til Ungdomen to the Youth um, from 1936 originally, and it was prominently used in memorial events in the um, months and years after. Um, the July 2011 attacks. Um, So it was for the, you know, to the youth, to the many young people who were um, murdered on the island of Utaya and those attacks in 2011. So you have an anti-Nazi wartime icon of national resistance from the historical period that was already iconic in his own moment. And then his idealistic poetry was kind of used more in more recent history as a unifying cultural tool against right-wing extremist violence. Um, In that public memory image, the more controversial aspects of Grieg, which we might talk about, his defense of Stalinism, for example, have have been sort of glossed over to to some extent.
2: No, absolutely. And we've talked on this channel a little bit about anti-fascism and how it's not as clear cut as a lot of people think. There was a communist version of anti-fascism and there was a more liberal democratic version. And you paint this fascinating picture of an individual who seems to be struggling his whole life with a political identity. And in your work, you focus on actually bringing out the cultural anxieties and the gendered anxieties in his writing. And I'm wondering if you could kind of, we'll talk more about Greek story, but could you talk a little bit about these kind of, um, you do a really great job of painting almost these national identities a bit between the UK, the Soviet Union, and Norway, and and Greek kind of almost triangulating himself at different points throughout his life. Could you explain a little bit about that um, decision to triangulate him with those
1: countries? Oh Yes, of course. So, um, yeah, one of the through lines in my book is that um, Grieg's political identity, though he was known as a communist and it, it was revealed in his Public writings. He was a prominent journalist. He was also a, a dramatist, a poet, a novelist. <laughs> um, that it, uh, he projected a very simplified identity as a communist, especially after 1933-34. But what he projected publicly was, um, you know, always simplifying. And um, he, you know, even after he was a staunch communist, there were other countervailing tendencies and aspects of his identity, um, aspects of his position um, and his past um, that were internally layered. And so um, what I actually argue in the start of the book is that the, the differing kind of currents that contributed to anti-fascism externally across culture of interwar Europe, you know, communists, pacifists, liberal humanists, nationalist kinds of anti-fascisms, that those were present within Grieg and can be seen as tensions um, between his literary works and within his literary works and especially the dramas, because the dramatic form sort of lends itself to ex- the expression of those kinds of different positions. Um, So you were talking about the ways that these positions were uh, aligned with geographical locations from Grieg's life experience and how those geographical locations came to uh, sort of signify ideas and attitudes in his work. And I'm I'm not the first one to talk about that. There are some very good books about Grieg that were written in Norwegian in the 50s. (laughs) That's where I got this idea. So I just want to um, put that out there. But basically, you have um, in England... Uh, the idea of um, humanism, liberalism, pacifism, a contemplative attitude. Um, Grieg spent time at Oxford, so the the association of England with Oxford is really prominent in his work. Um, And then the Soviet Union representing more of, well, obviously communism, revolutionary action, activism, enthusiasm, um, things that he comes to, to value very greatly after his time there in 1933, 1934. So there's a kind of an um, internal layering of those two things that are very, you see uh, pretty direct um, uh, competitions between those two kinds of um, attitudes and his works with the 1930s. And then there's also at least a third layer, which is the progressive democratic kind of Norwegian patriotism that, Um, is very vocal at times in his life and uh, especially during the war and is based largely on historical examples from Norwegian cultural history, um, especially the 19th century writers like um, Henrik Weiglund, who I think we'll talk about more later. Um, So I operate with this layered identity, this internal layering, because I think it's useful to show how, you know, there are different um, facets or aspects of Greek that are kind of activated at times and suppressed at other times across the, his, his movement through different political contexts in the 30s and 40s. And they all contribute to Grieg's antifascism. So I definitely am not using the idea of antifascism to mean solely uh, you know, a Soviet or a communist position um, in the case of Grieg. Um, but there's frictions here. These are um, kinds of attitudes that are incompatible with each other and prevent present Grieg with um, internal struggles. And I see those, um, you know, very much evidence in his dramatic and fictional works of, of the 1930s, especially. You mentioned uh, gender anxieties too. Do you want me to go into that at all? Please, yeah. Okay, so this is an important uh, strand of my analysis in the book that um, I think. Uh, you know, almost surprisingly hadn't really been coming up in a lot of what I was reading about Grieg because it's so on the surface. But um, there are these cultural anxieties about masculinity at a time of transition in gender roles. Um, I think there, there are issues like soldierly honor, war glory, even peacetime appropriate man, manliness that are being kind of questioned and revised around Grieg and the interwar culture that he sees. And um, he is, uh, as a writer and as a person, Uh, especially preoccupied, I think, with um, masculine rank and with something like the shame of feminization. So uh, that comes up a lot. So proper masculinity for Grieg, whether it's in his sort of young imperialist Kipling inspired phrase or his communist period in the thirties, it it involves um, courage, adventure, dedication to action, activism, um, facing the necessity of violence and sacrifice. Um, those kinds of attitudes that are linked to something like a, a, a masculine realism that he uh, contrasts usually, um, not, not explicitly, but sometimes explicitly, <laughs> to a uh, feminized pacifist or um, escapist or comfortable or idyllic kind of domestic stance. So there's a lot of misogyny in these attitudes, of course. There's a lot of homophobia in these attitudes that comes up. Um, And there are times when I um, and, you know, we can talk about it when Grieg um, becomes almost uh, macho in his uh, sort of defense of his political stances and and in a way uses um, gender based accusations to to smear his political opponents. Um, So uh, I can say more about that now or we can wait until it comes up in other contexts? Um,
2: yeah, let's let's uh, talk more about that when it kind of comes up in his writings and we can kind of jump in. So we talked a little bit about this kind of Kipling-esque mentality and and um, Grieg was, as you point out, he was very eager to travel and see the world. And um, instead of taking kind of the traditional path of university right after secondary school, Grieg actually goes out and becomes a sailor to go see the world and to see kind of what the, the labor of, of sailors looks like. And eventually he does study for a term in Oxford, but can you tell us how these early experiences influence him? And then there's a giant shift once he starts to see things like imperialism in practice. And um, like you talked about what starting to define this self-masculinity, what that means to him when he's out in the world.
1: Yeah. um, So I'll just mention Grieg was born in the fall of 1902. So when he does go on this trip in 1920 to, um, along a Norwegian cargo ship uh, called the Henrik Ibsen. He's only 17, um, and it's to ports in Africa, Australia, and um, South Asia. And there, um, as you mentioned, he had an interest in seeing the, the labor of sailors on board the ship, and that comes up in the, some of the poetry he wrote and the letters he wrote home about it. But it was a very literary interest in, in that subject. And um, you know, he wanted to gain experiences for literature. Um, and that that's very clear in um, the way he was expressing himself about his plans for this ship. Um, so he uh, was directly influenced by those experiences sailing for two published works. One of them is called, in English, Around the Cape of Good Hope. And that was his first collection, uh, collection of poetry that came out in 1922. And the other one is a, a novel from 1924, which is um, much more bleak and naturalistic and pessimistic. And that is called um, The Ship Sails On. Shippegoi vidra in Norwegian is the title. So at this stage, um, when Grieg was still under 20, really just in his early 20s um, for parts of it, Uh, He was very much under the spell of Rudyard Kipling and British imperialist uh, adventure narratives. Uh, He grew up with a a father who was an English teacher in Bergen um, and uh, a very Anglophilic literary household. He uh, was coming of age at a time when Kipling was the most popular English writer in the world, basically, Um, and it was Grieg's favorite writer. So in the book, I discuss how um, Kipling was also a kind of masculine obsession for for Grieg. Um, Grieg, through Kipling, was imagining the world of uh, the British Empire as a um, a proving ground for young men. It was a place where you know, Norwegian sailors or British soldiers could go out and um, show that they had the ideal form of, of um, masculinity, and which following Kipling, he imagined in terms of self-control, stoicism, endurance, sort of stewardship. There's the racial dimension of the stewardship in the imperial project, of course. Um, and his poetry uh, from the early 1920s is full of Um, orientalist exoticist language and cliches it's um, very much you know young Norwegian writers reception of like British late Imperial model of engagement with the world Um, I think it's interesting in terms of cultural and intellectual history I'm not surprised that it is not widely read today um, apart from a few examples Um, So a a more kind of political impact of Grieg's world travels in terms of him getting contact with realities of empire. That's really not felt until later in the decade. Um, um, To a large extent, even in the 1920 travels, he's staying on board the ship. Um, You know, there's quarantines where he can't get off the ship. On certain occasions, there's poems about that. Um, So he has this uh, high... Flown moral and political admiration for Kipling's vision of imperialism, and I think that really does remain intact um, until later in the decade, until you know 1927 to put a year on it, um, when when he's in China. And I think we'll talk about that. But it's a it's a ruler oriented view of empire and colonialism, and um, the ethical questions about the imperial project and the concerns of the ruled are not really um, coming up for for greed at this point and um, he he writes a thesis actually during his year at oxford um, in 1922 23 24 about kipling and in that thesis you know the, the rhetoric and the language very much track with the uh, you know what would have been kipling's own kind of defensive of and imperial idealism whether imperial rule is enacted according to its own ideals of Sort of service and stewardship, or um, there's no questioning of the morality of the imperial project itself for for Greek at that point. And um, th- I view this phase as very important and instructive for understanding his later political development too, because um, and I'm not the first to say this, but both his imperialist phase and his communist period were animated by a sort of very literary form of idealist politics that flew. Very high above, above practicalities, and both were reinforced as um, you know. One of the central strands of my book's argument is by um, questions of proper masculinity, like where where should the action be, where is the and where is the way that men contest themselves for endurance, <laughs> you know, and how will that play out in a political sphere, and how will the the gender obsession with that type of masculinity reinforce the politics in both. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, actually, on that topic, I'm just uh, I'm curious. Do you see? Grieg's experience um, with the sailing and, and, and the camaraderie he develops with the other men on board the ship as um, almost a, a substitute for that front experience he missed with the First World War? and Or do you see something as he's trying to insert that similar experience in, in hopes of kind of attaining that masculinity? Or, or how, would, how would you see that?
1: That's a really great suggestion. And I think it is right that, um, you know, Grieg because of his age and, um, you are know, born in 1902, not being of age for participating in the First World War and also belonging to a neutral country that, you know, was strongly tilted towards Great Britain. Um, but he did, I think, want to have substitutes for something like the front camaraderie experience, and he wanted to have uh, fantasies of that in his own writing. I mean, he wrote a whole book about the British um war soldiers, including Rupert Brooke. And um, so the, that kind of attraction to those um, homosocial environments, I, I think you're totally right to say that he's trying to um, compensate for coming, being of an age and coming from a neutral country where those experiences the, the front camaraderie or whatever weren't there for him, weren't available for him. So um, he did associate being with a, from a neutral country with a kind of a shameful form of passivity. And that, that comes up several times. That comes up a lot in the um, Spanish Civil War period, and um, when he's editing a anti-fascist journal by Enfrem, that I think we'll talk about a little bit more later. But that that's a recurrent theme for him, that, that neutrality is um, shameful. And also, there's a repeated um, criticism of Norwegian neutrality as a kind of fig leaf for the self-interested pursuit of, of business or commercial interests that um, comes up in, in his writings and, um, and you know is based in historical experiences but he he really fixates on that so yeah mm-hmm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So so
2: jumping back with with his kind of timeline here, so he becomes sort of disillusioned with the the Kipling-esque approach, and his journeys bring him eventually to China, where he meets these prominent individuals like Suqin Ling and Soviet advisor Mikhail Borodin. Um, Could you talk a little bit about this kind of exposure to um, both communism, but then also um, those who are being ruled and trying to carve out their own path against imperialism moving forward and how this is reflected in his writings?
1: Yes, absolutely. And th- thank you for taking us back to the uh, chronological uh, approach here. It's very easy to jump around with Grieg to some of his most important moments and um, putting them in relation to each other. But uh, we'll go We'll go to 1927. It's a very important and uh, productive year for Greek. So by the end of this year, um, he had produced two works that are really remarkable and I think worth reading today. There's a book of travel reportage called Chinese um, Skidalga, or Chinese Days, and a drama called Barabbas. So um, he uh, Grieg was in China in the spring of 1927 as a foreign correspondent for a Norwegian newspaper. And this was during a, a military campaign and known as the Northern Expedition, uh, which was led by the Nationalist Party in China, or the Kuomintang. And I won't um, attempt to explain that right now. But in that complicated situation, Grieg um, who had this knack for kind of getting into the center of situations. He managed to uh, befriend two people who are very important in, in China's complex political situation at that time. The first was uh, Song Ching Ling, as you mentioned, who was um, the widow of Sun Yat-sen. And she was only 34 at this time. And um, the other was Mikhail Borodin, who was a Soviet uh, emissary who was an advisor to the Kuomintang. Um, so, the friendships with these two, Sung Chingling and Mikhail Borodin, were really instrumental in, in leading Grieg to uh, reject whatever remained of his earlier Kipling esque idealization of imperialism and to bring him towards a greater sympathy for um the oppressed people of China um, and for the politics of the Chinese nationalist and also the Communist Party, you know separate <laughs> groups of course, um, and and more generally for oppressed people seeking um, justice or self-rule throughout the world. So that's really um, this is happening very definitively in 1927. There's still a constriction on how much Greek can say about his sympathies for people like Mikhail Borodin in the context of the work on Chinese days because that was written for a sort of um, center-right liberal anti-communist Norwegian newspaper. Um, but it, it becomes clear that he's idealizing um, both Borodin and Song Qingling. Uh, he falls in love with Song Qingling, and I'm pretty sure this is pl- platonic from her side, but romantic from Grieg's side. That's the impression I get. Um, so he idealized her as a uh, a noble and compassionate um, voice for the oppressed seeking justice throughout the world. And um, I, I find it interesting that despite Grieg's um, typical obsession with, with men, you know, he has this kind of pretty um, interesting series of attractions and romantic entanglements with older, gifted, intellectually stimulating women, including eventually his wife, guard Grieg, um, So Mikhail Borodin um, was something more like a father figure to Grieg. Um, They would spend um, time with conversations about literature and world politics. And then this gets reflected both in Chinese days, the travelogue, where Borodin is um, directly covered, so to speak, and presented as a patient, uh, wise, somewhat disillusioned tactician who thinks that the um, goals of anti-imperialism and communism and and China will take centuries to complete, um, and uh, also in the other drama. So, or the other work, which is the drama Barabbas, which Borodin figures greatly in. Uh, um, the drama Barabbas is actually dedicated to Bor- Borodin. There are the characters, or several characters, who who are kind of influenced by um, Borodin's ideas. So, um, do you want me to tell us a little bit about that drama now? Uh, please,
2: yes. Okay. It's a fascinating take on kind of an old biblical approach to, to
1: violence versus revolution and, and pacifism. Exactly. Yeah. So, this is Greek's first dramatic success. It um, ends up premiering in October of 1927 in Oslo. And it's set in biblical times. The main conflict is between um, the peaceful gospel of Jesus Christ and the demand for violent revolution and revolt expressed by. Um, the title character, Barabbas. So the language of this drama is, um, you know, read in Norwegian, it's very much an an intentional pseudo-biblical language, but there are also some deliberate anachronisms and reference to things like central committees and the the use of the term anti-imperialism, for example. So it's um, better to understand this as a work that wants to be like a timeless allegory about power and oppression and the need for you know, violence or what type of approach pacifism or violence will be worthwhile um, and not some kind of work about um, ancient Judea in a historically specific way. So there's a short scenes here. Um, It takes place in the Holy Land and Christ and Barabbas are competing to influence starving and injured masses who are oppressed and the Roman imperial forces. Um, you know, play the role of something like the British Empire um, and the modern circumstances. Um, Barabbas tries to inflame the hatred of the people against the oppressors and rejects any idea that um, a Christian method message of of love or tolerance or patience could be useful. So Barabbas says, you, you know, you should hate all of them, all of the foreigners, all the imperialists, hate them all until the people are free. Um, that's his message, you know. So it's pretty clear that Christianity and the drama is not not the historical religion itself. It's you know modern ideas of pacifism, patient nonviolence, or mildness in the face of an enemy's force. Um, so this uh, uh, is an interesting drama that I think uh, you know hasn't been staged all that much, but it, it you know it's probably his first successful drama. Um, It inaugurates this line of thinking in Grieg's works that um, shows a a real equivocation, I guess, between Christ and Barabbas, between the ethical ideal of nonviolence and the fantasy of uh, morally unconstrained power that could really face down the enemy on the enemy's own terms. And, um, you know, in, in my analysis of this play, I also discussed the way that um, the power of Barabbas is a fantasy of unconstrained male vi- vigor. And that comes through pretty clearly in certain moments of the play. Um, so it's an unresolved tension that comes up again in Grieg's works in the play from 1937, where, you know, instead of being said in, t- in terms of anti-imperialism and imperialism, it's about different possibilities within revolutionary socialism. Um, so. Uh, the question of nonviolence versus the need to take up um, arms in a very, you know, violent way to uh, achieve justice—that that's what what is central here. Um, Grieg uh, is usually understood as a pacifist author in Norway. Getting back to the kind of memory image of Grieg, so it is interesting to see that he was really um, thinking about these issues in in serious ways, and attracted to both sides of this question uh, throughout his uh, career.
0: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
2: What's fascinating, because as he moves forward in his life, and as he starts to really kind of um, associate himself with communism, he moves to Moscow to get this really direct experience in 1933. And we also see that, the Nazi seizure of power, causes a tremendous amount of anxiety in his life about, as you kind of had said, this um, failure to act and neutrality in the face of rising fascism. But Grieg actually becomes a defender of the Stalinist vision of communism and this justified violence for the sake of, of the Workers' Revolution. And and you write that 1936 is when he starts to continue on these ideas that he had originated with, with um, Barabbas and others. Could you talk a little bit about some of these works he develops in 1936 and the historical context of Stalin's purges and the Spanish Civil War and how they play a role in his writings?
1: Yes, uh, of course. And and let me, before I get to 1936, let me just uh, say quickly that it it is in 1933, 1934, that Grieg spends um, almost two years in Moscow. He went there to study Soviet theater and wrote about it from uh, you know in norwegian for norwegian audiences from his time in moscow and that um along with the um you know hitler's coming to power in, in 33 and uh Grieg being frightened by that and um worried about the you know whether there were resources to oppose nazism and in, in western europe all, all of that kind of takes him to this very clear so pro-soviet perspective by the end of 1934 and by the time he's returning to norway and he's planning to engage and um, anti-fascist pro-Soviet cultural work when he comes back um, from his trip to Moscow. And in 1935, 1936, there are two kind of landmark dramas that he has performed um, that are really important in Norwegian, ther- in Norwegian theater of the 1930s. Um, uh, so one of them is known as Vor Aero, Vor and the other one is called Manly Morn, But Tomorrow. So um, I, I just want to mention those works before we get to 1936 because going into 1936, th- we have Grieg um, as a theatrical success, as a prominent um, pro-Soviet voice in Norway, and um, more and more as somebody who is um, taking a Stalinist line and uh, not a Trotskyist line by any means. And um, he is attempting to uh, you know shore up his uh, um, hatred for Nazism within Soviet communism and um, becoming, in in my view, in my reading of this, uh, very frustrated by any critics on the left who don't agree with that um, approach. And um, that's what eventually uh, plays out in the pages of his um, journal, The Way Forward. which starts in nineteen thirty six. So I'm finally getting to to the year that that you asked about. I just wanted to uh, you know mention some of that other stuff along the way. So it, it was when he was in um in Moscow in nineteen thirty four when Grieg attended the um, the writers' congress in Moscow that he started having this idea for an anti fascist journal. He thought that um, it could be like a Nordic venue for intellectual life that was being chased out of Nazi Germany, and he thought it would be a radical Scandinavian writers. Organization um, that could uh, f- bring forward all the cultural and artistic and intellectual goals of anti-fascism and be a venue for that. So in, in 1935, um, in the wake of the um, you know Cominterns conference uh, conference that elevated this kind of popular front anti-fascism, uh, Grieg said you know decided that his journal could you know play that role in Scandinavia. And um, I, what I in my analysis of the journal's run, I kind of Um, Emphasize the gap between that ambition for a popular front style anti-fascism and Grieg's um, policing of the boundaries of what he thinks the correct anti-fascist thinking should be. So as I mentioned before, it's Stalinist, not Trotskyist. There's a real split that emerges between Grieg's communism and um, the figures who are known as the cultural radicals in Norway at this time, um, many of whom were socialists, but who are much more interested also in psychoanalysis and, and gender issues and in all sorts of things that weren't coming onto to um, Grieg's radar, so to speak. So um, the, the journal becomes a place where um, Grieg uh, in, in the course of 1936, 1937, of course, the Spanish Civil War is happening at this time. Grieg is uh, um, policing and constricting what he thinks anti-fascism should be. And and this is partly why the journal fails because it um, it becomes a place where if you are uh, critical or skeptical about um, what Greek thinks anti-fascism should be, or, you know, um, if you're critical of Stalinism, if you're critical of the show trials, then you get made fun of in the, in the pages of this journal. So of course that's not really a recipe for continuing this sort of broad anti-fascist left in any way. Um, so the, the journal is also really important for two other things that I'll mention. One is that this famous poem, "Til Ungdomen, was first published in, in the pages of Weyenthram. That's the single text uh, to the youth, excuse me for um, not mentioning the English title. It's the text that Grieg now in the 21st century is probably most known for, the one that was used in the memorial concerts in the wake of um, the 2011 attacks. So it actually comes from 1936. Um, it's a poem that's about the opposition between Um, The forces of life, um, which have spirit as their weapon, und or geist, if we're using a German term, and the forces of destruction and violence. Um, So it's written to the youth and it counsels the youth to believe in human dignity as their weapon and, you know, that their their weapon is uh, their shield against violence is uh, human dignity and the belief and the value of of life. so that, that is often read then as this, you know, very pacifist poem that is uh, interesting because of the context that it comes from is the pages of this journal where Grieg was explicitly arguing against pacifism. And, um, in you know, just one or two issues away from when Ungdomen was published, um, you had Grieg arguing that humanist pacifism was, it was passive, it was defeatist, it was useless, it was ineffectual. There was an open letter that he wrote um, to the British author Aldous Huxley. Um, that was published in v- Vientrem. And um, you know, Huxley had argued that um, violent methods can never lead to anything except for more violence, and that a conscientious objector, pacifist, c- should work to influence people's hearts and minds. And um, Grieg wrote uh, sort of, yes, that's true, but if you don't see capitalism as a system that inevitably leads to war, if you don't side with Stalin in all these ways, then um, you're not really fighting the right fight. So so it's not that Grieg didn't want to see nonviolent means deployed. It's just that he thought that there um, had to be uh, the, the very specific understanding of capitalism and fascism and the way that the Marxists and Stalinists saw that as being related and that, that um, a strictly pacifist stance was, was ineffectual and, and um, emasculating. So that's um, where we are in the moment of the Spanish Civil War. Um, the other thing that happened in in Frem too is that Grieg uh, directly uh, defended Stalin's show trials. After and you know, the summer of 1936, a group of Norwegian authors had um, gone public, um, decrying the death sentences in the show trials as an abuse of power. And um, um, for example, Sigurd Hul, some other figures from that time who. Um, I won't mention right now, but um, Grieg thought that that was a defection from the cause, so to speak. So that was, um, this is mirroring a much larger issue in the um, European left and and this era. But Grieg took the side that you had to see the show trials as um, parts of a process of historical necessity and that the people who were sentenced in the trials um, were, as Grieg put it, um, they showed the tragic inner conflict of Stalin's will to victory. So um, I'm kind of going on at length about Viandram, but all of this was happening in, in the pages of this journal, The Way Forward, Viandram. You had Tilundom, and you had the critique of pacifism. You had the defense of Stalin show trials, and you also had um, a ton of stuff about the Spanish Civil War. Of course, one one thing I wanted to ask was:
2: Does Greek ever come out? I know that Trotsky spent a period of time exiled in Norway. Does he explicitly come out and condemn this decision to allow Trotsky to be here? Or does he get into any sort of kind of open political debates about that? Or does he tend to keep it more um, in
1: his writings and kind of plays and, and, and novels? Well, there are there are parts in by and from where he explicitly condemns uh, the Trotskyites and the Norwegian Trotskyites who, who brought him there. And yeah.
2: You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, I mean, he's really falling into line, and like you said, it really takes a defending Stalinism by taking a Stalinist approach to running a journal is what it sounds like.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's um, I, this is you know it, it's probably coming through that this is where I have problems with Greek and where I get kind of disappointed in the way that I see him using his venue and his voice and the kinds of infights with other figures in the Norwegian cultural literary scene who I think he should be attempting to build bridges with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When,
2: so as time kind of moves forward, he has these Stalinist loyalties and he writes this this play that is probably the most Open defense of Stalinism with is this is the defeat correct the, the the play about the Paris Commune and the importance of that could you talk a little bit about um, just kind of the narrative and how this is used as his cultural defense for Stalinism and and the the importance of staying united against the forces of fascism.
1: Yes, uh, yes. This play is called "The Defeat" in English, "Nederlaga" um, in Norwegian, and um, it is uh, considered. Grieg's best play by many people. And so starting with the idea that it's a defense of Stalinism um, might be a a tough sell in terms of how to get people to understand why it's, um, why it is one of his best dramas. But it it does basically uh, set out to illustrate something that it sees as a bitter truth, basically, which is that um, if we want peace and progress and justice, then you have to remain strictly unified in the face of a brutal and cynical enemy. And Grieg uses the um, historical example of the Paris Commune from the spring of 1871 to to illustrate this lesson. And it is, it is a lesson that comes through pretty clearly. Um, you know, again, it's that you have to have a, a unified, almost dictatorial sense of order um, on the left to fight against the enemy which will do anything. So the the theatrical premiere of this play took place in 1937, so um, spring of 1937, so it was well before the defeat of um, the Republican forces in the Spanish Civil War. But the play um, came in that moment and was immediately understood by a lot of audiences as being about the Spanish Civil War. So you have the layer of the Paris Commune from 1871, you have the contemporary layer of the Spanish Civil War. And the lesson is that internal divisions and rivalries threaten the goal of a unified movement. And that's why you need something like a Stalinism um, to have a dictatorship (laughs) to control the left. So um, I think the play is good and interesting because of the nuances it has and the polyvocal nature of the dramatic form that there are these kind of competing voices despite this um, stated intention of the play that uh, you know centralized authority and the enforcement of unity is the important issue. So um, the characters in this drama, the figures from the commune, they have different ideas about violence and force, about authoritarian power versus individual liberties. They have different ideas about how what's important in terms of um, rational calculation in a revolutionary movement or emotional engagement. And these are all historical figures from the commune that are filtered through. Um, the character designs that we see in Greek's previous d- dramas. So um, in in Niederlage, Defeat, you have the central conflict of Christ against Barabbas that we were talking about, now reprised into figures from the commune, um, Rigo and Varlan, as they're um, known by their last names only in the play. So um, the issue of pacifism is again in place, the issue of whether we need hate or belief in uh, human dignity and love uh, uh, for the left to be victorious those kinds of issues are here again um, and it's now in the context of a sort of socialist anti-fascism rather than anti-imperialism so despite
2: these kind of Stalinist loyalties and uh, as he's writing about the importance of a, a unified left, Uh, like a lot of communists and uh, pro-Stalinist forces in 1939, everyone is shocked with the announcement of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and this non-aggression deal between uh, supposedly bitter enemies, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And like other communists, this leaves Grieg in a bit of an ideological paradox. And you talk about how we see kind of a shift in his writings, in particular with this moment but then in the spring of 1940 with the Nazi invasion of Norway and could you talk a little bit about how this is reflected in his writings
1: yes um, so uh, of course the August uh, 1939 non-aggression pact was you know get people like Greek in a difficult position and I'll just start by mentioning um, two ways that he responded that one was privately in a letter to his his mother who was an anti-communist who and hoped that greed would um eventually shed his communist outlook. So Grieg wrote to his mother, um, you know, when she asked him, does this make you reconsider things? Um, He he wrote and said, no, basically, there's no real cooperation between Stalin and Hitler and no reconciliation between these two ideological enemies. They're they're still the same old enemies. So uh, I don't know how she took that. And then publicly, you know, because Grieg was a significant voice in the communist press in a lot of the late 1930s, and an interview published in a, a communist newspaper in Norway called Arbeiderin, um he rationalized the pact and um, said it was a necessary evil that was actually um, caused by the non-interventionism and appeasement policies of the Western powers. So he was thinking of things like the non-interventionism in the Spanish Civil War, and of course, um, Munich in 1938. So um, it was those things that had allowed the um, further spread of uh, fascism in Spain and Czechoslovakia, according to Greek. And somehow that you know that was to blame for for the pact. So um, the the pact with Hitler was some, something that would allow the Soviet Union to stay out of the coming war, Greeks. Thought And that war was going to be between these reactionary forces of Nazism and, you know, the liberal capitalism of Western Europe. So that, would, that was actually something that would allow the Soviet Union, you know, sort of paradoxically in this way to remain on the side of peace um, in the way that Grieg was rationalizing this. Um, of course, that's, that's not what was happening. Um, but uh, so Grieg then turned uh, in 1939, 1940, um, and the course of that winter, there's a lot of changes happening. There's the Soviet invasion of Finland, which was also very difficult for um, Scandinavians who were pro-Soviet, put them in a difficult position. caused a lot of conflicts between Grieg and immediate family members, like his older brother, Harald Grieg, um, who was very pro-Finnish in that um, conflict. So by April 1940, when Norway and Denmark are invaded by Nazi Germany, Grieg has um, been in a position where, as I would describe it, he's kind of um, treading cautiously (laughs) about what he's saying about world events. And um, he's become known as this almost intolerant communist figure, as we were just discussing in Thram. And um, and his 1938 novel that we didn't mention um, is a really scathing, dark political vision of, of Scandinavia, of Western Europe, of, um, you know, it's an anti-Nazi novel, but it's, um, it's kind of like a Stalinist satire of contemporary Europe, and it's it's a really dark book. So he turns from that; it really takes a um, an about face and starts to try to be inspiring and try to be. Um, uh, a literary voice that represents norwegian values in some kind of recognizable way so um to, to answer your question basically he turns to an idealizing form of progressive norwegian patriotism that um, he had previously explored in some poetry collection um collections from around 19, well one collection from around 1930 and he becomes the uh, one of two or three most significant literary voices of the anti-Nazi resistance. And um, the, the moment when this really happens um, in 1940 in, in the context of the invasion is after Grieg has escaped north from Oslo. He is in the northern city of Tromsø, and it's uh, May 17th, not too long after the invasion of April 9th. And Grieg read a a poem on the radio that is called The 17th of May, 1940. And um, that is a moment where he, I think, really takes on the role of a a progressive nationalist poetocrat. There's this term, uh, you know, poetocrat from the Norwegian cultural tradition of the 19th century. And, um, you know, there there are I could cite lines from this some of them are very famous but I think I'll, I'll leave it at that because we don't have the text in front of us right now but it, this is uh, a, a poem that plays up the historical significance of the site where Norwegian's constitution was drafted on uh, May, May 17th, 1814 and you know Grieg is not damning Norway for its neutrality or non-interventionism as he was a couple of years earlier. He's not saying you know Norway is a nation of war profiteers. he's saying that Norway is the best um, virtues lie in this kind of pacifist desire to uphold a spiritual foundation of democracy and, and um, popular rule and resistance to authoritarianism. So that's really where Greed goes after the invasion. Uh, a figure that becomes extremely important for him, as for a lot of other um, Norwegian um, writers on the left at the time, is Henrik Verglan. And I, I think this is actually what your next question is about.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I'm curious. So Greek, or you write that Grieg has this this, di- this desire to craft himself as a twentieth-century Heinrich Wegeland. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that would mean as a twentieth-century kind of progressive voice against injustice and exploitation. And do you think that Grieg succeeds with this? Is, this is kind of the you know, unfortunately, as a his life is cut short. But does he succeed in this endeavor to to craft himself as this twentieth-century Wegeland, or is he kind of in his
1: own category altogether? yeah those are those are really good questions and um, I think just to start with a blunt answer, I think yes I, I do think Grieg succeeded in um, at least pivoting from Stalin to Vergeland, if you want to put it that way in a in a fairly successful way that has influenced the way he's remembered and what his legacy was in Norway. So I, I do think that in the early years of the occupation he was able to do that. So one Norwegian scholar Marianne Eglan, has uh, noted that the war and occupation actually um, provided Grieg with an opportunity that saved him in a way from this continued struggle he was having to reconcile the political realities of his support for Stalinism with the um, high-flown humanitarian rhetoric of poems like Till Ungdomen, To the Youth. And, and, you know, in my analysis, you know, his layered identities that we've talked about associated with the different geographical locations, the Anglophile humanism, Norwegian progressive nationalism, and pro-Soviet communism are temporarily allied at this time, especially after 1941. Um, so by the end of the decade the, uh, of the 1940s, they'll be split apart again in the Cold War, but he's not around for that. So I think there's a way in which there's a there's a kind of harmoniousness that um, comes to Grieg, and because of the geopolitical circumstances, and he also um, is is a kind of figure who I think had longed for an audience that would indulge his most pompous impulses, <laughs> if I could put it that way. And the the context of um, wartime resistance poetry, where it is, it's a, a kind of poetry that is articulating. Or trying to articulate kind of basic and fundamental values and to get people to line up as a group around them, and I'm not saying that suspiciously. I'm just kind of describing what this um, poetry is. So um, Grieg stepped into that role, I think, with great enthusiasm. You know, he also volunteered to, to join the army, and you know, trained um, to become an officer. And he was working as a cultural propagandist. You know, he had to leave Norway. He and his wife, Gerd Grieg, Um, Became important cultural figures in the sort of Norwegian exile community in the UK. And they worked as propagandists. And the the kind of poetry that Grieg is writing at this time is, you know, there's no clear line between his poetry in the war and um, his propaganda efforts. It really seeps together. Some of the poems he wrote were intended as pieces of direct propaganda. So he's privately wrestling to uh, uh, deal with this continued support for Stalinist communism at the same time while he's writing kinds of poems in praise of democracy and freedom. Um, So that's obviously, you know, something that he might have had to sort through in his own reckoning if he had lived past 1943. But in terms of the way he was projecting these things publicly, he insisted, um, you know, and questioned about it, that there was no contradiction between his praise of Norwegian progressive, democratic, liberal traditions and his continued support for um, the Stalinist Soviet Union. And um, you know, there are some interesting occasions where he was asked about that, and um, I don't know if he gave satisfactory answers. Normally, he his answer was something like, "Well, it's you know, it's better to be an anti-Nazi than to be a Nazi." Um, so I think there were some deflection going on. Um, but publicly the uh, things that he was most known for are those poems in praise of uh, the sort of spiritual cultural foundation of Norwegian democracy, the ones where he's attempting to speak like Vergeland for um, for popular sovereignty in the case of Norway, for values that um, tend towards uh, liberty and freedom and the Norwegian tradition, and then also internationally for press groups um, around the world. And Vergeland um, was a, Romantic poet, liberal romantic poet figure from the first half of the 19th century in Norway. Um, One of the things he was um, most well known for was his sort of campaigning on behalf of Jews who were forbidden by that um, original 1814 i constitution, according to the second article from entering the Kingdom of Norway. So Verglan was seen as a a figure who was of special relevance because of his um, campaigning on behalf of the Jewish people. Um, You know, that... um, Mordal Greek wasn't the only one who noticed the special relevance of that in in the nineteen thirties and forties. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Dean, you've given us a lot of your time today, and so I just have kind of one last question. I know, as as at least with historians, we should never engage in kind of the what if, but the way you're sound, the way you're describing Greek, it sounds like he would have been in similar company um, with a lot of the post-war intellectuals. I, I, I hear Greek's story and I think of like Albert Camus, this individual who eventually turns away from communism and, and, and at least the totalitarian and the, the violent aspects of it. Do you, do you get the sense that that Greek would have had a similar trajectory to this just basically as he's trying to craft himself as his voice against injustice and exploitation? Or do you think he would have kind of had this paradox for the remainder of his life you know, if he would have lived longer?
1: Yeah. You know, I I don't really know. I, I sometimes imagine Grieg as a Camus-type figure, um, or in the context of Norway, there are examples like this, a poet named Arne Överland, who um, is very much like Grieg, and then took a very strongly anti Solinist, anti-totalitarian stance. Um, and, and other times I imagine him um, like some of his, you know, Norwegian communist friends who uh, maintained their communism well into the Cold War period and, you know, were um, situated intellectually in that way, uh, or like Jean-Paul Sartre or something, you know, to, if we are going to bring up Camus. So there, there are possible futures to think about there. Um, I think it would have been especially difficult for Grieg to um, continue to engage in the type of um, rhetorical defenses of Norwegian democracy and freedom in the Norwegian tradition, um, I think he eventually probably would have been questioned more about what he was really saying in that wartime poetry by, by people who are skeptical of his communism afterwards. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it is worth wondering about. Um, and then, of course, in the book, I talk about the different ways that he was remembered by sort of the different camps of a, a mainstream Norwegian nationalism and a specifically, um, you know, communist Soviet aligned kind of memory of Greek, and both of them are picking and choosing different things from what he wrote. So um, I do hope that if, you know, people get more interested in the kind of layered and complicated nature of this author and are sensing that he is, you know, not necessarily like a great author on literary terms, but a figure who really um, uh, provides an interesting set of reactions to events in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Europe. I I hope people will develop an interest in him and, you maybe read this book or want to read something by him or see one of his works performed if they're ever done in English (laughs) in a dramatic context.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, Dean, you've given us... Um, just a, a fascinating glimpse into Rodolphe Grieg's life here today. So, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. I really appreciate being invited to do this, and i uh, I'm glad that you have engaged with the book in such an interesting way, too.
2: Absolutely. Making of an Anti-Fascist, Nordahl-Grieg, Between the World Wars is available through University University of Wisconsin uh, Press and where major books are sold. And I highly encourage readers to get their hands on it. There's a lot of relevant issues um, in terms of the political and, and economic questions that are arising today. All right. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.